Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the internet featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video and uh, uh, interviews, video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. Yes, indeed. Lots of different kinds of articles. Uh, I write something three times a week for them, a little essay about just what it is to be a person who writes stuff. We've got articles about the business and the craft and just what it is to be a person. And then we've got video interviews of my most recent with uh, Kira Jane Buxton. Interesting woman. Interesting woman. Whoa. Had it tough. Was a, Tried to be an actress. Didn't work out. But all that failure that she experienced in Hollywood, well, it actually helped her in some ways. Yes, it did. She talks about that. She talks about writing a book narrated by a crow. <laughs> and how that decision led to success. Yes. Great interview. Go check it out at authormagazine.org. And we're funded by the fabulous people over at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. Yes, uh, we have been. Uh, you know, they do a conference every year, and uh, we're doing it again this year. Now, we just hope that the uh, virus will have uh, thinned out by the time September rolls around. I suspect it will have, and we can all meet again. So I encourage you, if you think you want to go to a conference in September, to go on over to the PNWA. Sign up now. If you do it now, it's a little cheaper. It's good, right? Save a few bucks. Why not? Also, if you want to pitch your your novel, your memoir, your screenplay, you can do it to more agents and editors if you sign up early. That's right. So it's a, it's a, it's a leap of faith, early bird special. It's worth it. Go check it out, pnwa.org. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, not much going on with me. I'm, I hope to be teaching a fearless writing here in Seattle, up in Issaquah in April. We'll see. We'll see if people are still meeting together. I don't know. Um, otherwise, nothing really. Let's talk. Let's talk about Donna Conrad, should we? Yes, we should talk about Donna. Donna is an award-winning author, journalist, activist, and teacher. Her core values revolve around the concept of individual empowerment, a sustaining ideal running through the books she writes. She has studied writing with the likes, get this people, with the likes of Allen Ginsberg, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and Erica Jong. Her writing interests are varied and include articles for fine art periodicals, memoir narrative nonfiction, as well as historical flash and paranormal fiction. She teaches all of the above at writers' conferences, including the PNWA. Yes, indeed. Her first published book, House of the Moon, Surviving the 60s, her memoir was has received rave reviews. Now she's here with us today. Donna, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Bill. Great to be here. So, Donna, you and I met for the first time last September at the PNWA, and we were on a panel on writing as a spiritual practice. Do you, do you remember that? I do. I do. I have a great memory. It was a wonderful panel, and it was quite an experience to consider writing as a spiritual practice, which I hadn't done before, but found that it, it truly is. How, and, what did you, uh, so how I did thank that, you. <laughs> well, you're welcome, but you, you had some great things to say, I thought, at that panel. Uh, what, so how do you, um, when you, if someone had to ask you, why is writing, a, I'm going to put you on the spot, why is writing a spiritual <laughs> practice, what would you tell them now? 
I would say that it is a spiritual practice because it is the the one way I think in my life that I get in touch with that still quiet place that to me is connected to the universe. And I get to interact on a different level than I do in anything else that um, I, I work at. Yeah. You know, so you, uh, your, your, your core values, as I read in your little bio, revolve around individual empowerment. And don't you think that an individual's power comes from that still quiet place? I mean, isn't that really like the source of it? It is for me, at least, I should say. Oh, I No, absolutely. And I would say a part of how I survived the 60s, which anybody who's <laughs> read my memoir would ask, how did you survive? <laughs> how did you um, do it? How did I survive? Yes. Um, came from that quiet space that I could go and seek sustenance and strength. And I had that even back then as a teenager. I had it as a small child. And I kind of turned my back on it as I got older and involved in business and doing all of these things. Uh, And now that I've come back to writing, I I really have found that that's the, the source of my strength. Yeah. It is so easy to mistake power for something outside of us. I hear people talking about power and this one has power and this one doesn't have power and this one has more power than that one. And my, my personal understanding of it is that we all have that, that within us is the, the same source of power, but you have to know where it is. And it is not in your job title or how much money you have or the kind of car you drive or how, how great your hair is or whatever it is, you know, how many books you've sold. Well, I can't, I can't agree with the hair thing. Okay. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is there, but you know, I do. Cause you know, don't you, you know, that's still quiet place. I do like, in fact, I just wrote a piece this morning, Donna, for the, some, someone wanted me to write about a, uh, a thing about the link between meditation and writing. And so I did. And I talked about that. St- I think I might've even used those words that to me belongs to anybody can have that. That's there for anybody who goes looking for it. That's not nothing special to me. Well, and what I have found is that in, in times of great stress or mm-hmm. um, when one is utterly confused and doesn't know where to go, where to turn, what to do, I think we naturally fall into that space and we don't often recognize it as being that. Yeah. But it is that space that belongs solely to us, but we're all connected to all of the universe. So it's we only are. by being connected to that deepest part of ourselves that we feel the connection to everyone else. Yeah. That's really like the portal to everybody else, isn't it? Like that, that's that the way is a it. very good term for it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So Ginsburg, Ferlinghetti, John, you beat Nick, you hippie. So this was, <laughs> I know. This, this was these, so these, so these are some of the people who train with you were in Northern, you're in California, Northern California. It sounds like uh, you're in California. At least you grew up there. Um, when did writing, when did you start getting interested in writing? When did that first really light up for you? I would have to say my love of writing came very, very early. Um, my mother used to read to me every night. And when I was about three, I remember this urge or this need to figure out how she was doing that. How, how was she looking at these scratches on a page and making a story out of them. And 
I just became fascinated with it. And I was actually reading by the time I was three. Wow. And then oh, I was, I was raised in Germany and came back. Uh, my dad was a, an operative for the U S government there. And uh, well, actually for the U S military. And we came back to an Irish household and my grandfather was the most, my mother's father was the most remarkable storyteller I've ever met in my life, outside of Jack White, for anybody who knows Jack White. He's a <laughs> remarkable storyteller, too, in the Witten word. And my grandpa would sit around and tell these stories. And one thing that I always say about him, every Christmas, he would tell the same story <laughs> every year, and it was never the same twice. Right. Right. And that fascinated me. And I wanted to know how to do that. See, see, it's interesting because my love, I mean, I was a reader, but I also came from a family of storytellers. We all told each other stories. My mom's a great storyteller. My brother and sister are. My dad can tell a good story. And I would want to tell stories. And so I've always felt that I can't, I don't know which was more important, the reading, which was important, or just telling people stories. My best friends were all storytellers, too. I just love telling oh, someone tell me a story, you know, out loud. Well, and in my book, House of the Moon, you, you see how often I told stories to get myself out of trouble. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it came in handy. Right. So let's and, talk and about so that. Then when, yeah. no, no, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, so when I ran into the likes of Lawrence Furlan, help me here, Lawrence Furlan Getty. Yeah. Up at, uh, in San Francisco reading, it, it was phenomenal to think that. And I actually heard Allen Ginsberg early on do the recitation of Howl. Oh, you did? Uh, you know, at, wow. at City Lights. And it just, really? At City it, Lights? Man, that's like, yeah, that's it. it. That's history. That's yeah. phenomenal. I, I don't wow. think I, that can ever be topped. And it literally pressed me back into my chair. Wow. And I thought if I could ever even approach that altar of greatness, it would be something. And so when it was available for me to study with him, and I studied with him over a long period of time, I, I wanted to know his secrets. What did he teach you? What do you think he taught you? He, he taught me, again, that still silent place. Uh-huh. And to say that whatever... You need to say it needs to come from the value of truth as you know it. And as right. your personal truth changes, then your story changes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. Because you wrote House of the Moon. So I write personal narrative also. I write about sort of memoir-ish stuff. I, write about, I use a lot of my own life <clears throat> as the source material. And the fact is... What I have to say about the past depends on what I think in the present. You know, what I'm interested in now determines what I have to say about the past, I think. Oh, absolutely. Our perspectives change. And my perspectives of my past and growing up in the 60s changed after I wrote the book. Oh, good. And it gave me a perspective. And now that I'm a published author and a teacher, I look back at that time differently and I find those incredible kernels of inspiration that happened during all of that desperation. 
and I, I see the seeds that have made me the person I am. So would I so ever go talk. back and change it? No. No. See, this is it. This is, this is, this is, this, this is all memoirists. The worst time was the time I wouldn't want to live again, but it's time that made me what I am. The worst time was what I needed in one way or another. Absolutely. Or you would never want to go. So let's talk about that because in one way uh, you mm-hmm. describe, this is a, actually it covers a relatively short-ish period of your life, but it deals about with. four years. Yeah. But it's a hectic time. And you are, but, but from the outside, you're living a very sort of, uh, sort of traditional American suburban sixties, nuclear family kind of thing from the outside. Uh, but it's anything but that. So maybe for people who haven't read the book yet, just a brief overview of the kind of chaos you were being raised in. Oh, I would say it's the opening of the book. Well, the actually the opening of the book yeah, takes well, the place opening. when I'm 18 and then yeah. flips back because right. I wanted people to know where I ended up and then how I got there. But yeah. the beginning, I, I grew up in Covina, California. And as I say, Covina, California was a clean white place to live right. with narrow, with wide streets and narrow minds. But it was a place <laughs> that people took their children to protect them and to make it a clean white suburb where their kids would be safe. Right. And my father was actually diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. And I didn't know it until I was probably in my forties that he just suffered from PTSD and uh, world war II veterans were never treated and would never talk about it. But he was behind German lines all during world war II as really operative for the CIC, the, right. the military, I think it was OSI. And then in Korea, he was one of the three secret servicemen that were dropped behind enemy lines to plan the invasion of Incheon Harbor. And right. I didn't get that. And so he was incredibly violent and right. beat my mother unconscious in front of us. And right. so I got into drugs through my older sister who's four years older and I did a lot of drugs and got myself into a lot of trouble and was dragged into situations that no 14 year old should be dragged into and it was an attempt to normalize my life because it was so insane at home and there was no safety so drugs normalized it for me and I think it does for a lot of people But I will say this, I'm not at all advocating drug use, because drugs back in the 60s, I think, were a lot kinder and a lot safer than they are now. Yeah. (laughs) But they still... As strange as that might sound. But they still leave you... The problem with drugs is, I mean, they they, they help you drop... They help you feel a little better, which is always good. But they leave you... You end up making decisions. You're just not tuned into yourself. You're not tuned into your your guidance system, which will say, don't go there, Donna, stay away from there, Donna, get out of there, Donna. Drugs will just blur the, cause, cause there, you got yourself into situations that if you had, that you now would never even come close to that. You would, you know, you wouldn't even be in the same block as, but you just, your, your senses were so screwed up then that you couldn't know it. You were so young. You were so anyway. So I do think they blur, they they kind of fog you up. I, I agree completely. And what they did was they made it seem as if 
if internally, we go back to that, that place inside of yourself, if I could feel safe and protected in there, then of course I'd be safe and protected in the world. And right. that was the illusion of the drugs and especially the hallucinogens, which yeah. I, I always said that I would, I would stop taking any hallucinogens if I ever had a bad trip, which is why that first chapter is there. That was the first right. bad trip I had when I was 18. So all of that showed me peace and love and acceptance and harmony and universal connectedness, which truly wasn't there at that time physically. So I wonder how you precisely what you said. I wonder how you didn't come out just nuts. I didn't just come out hating people <laughs> or just hating people and afraid of them. How you came out capable of being in love. You've got a partner now. You've, I mean, you've had a life. Do you ever think it's yes. somewhat miraculous that you just didn't crack apart completely and irrevocably? Yes. And, um, you know, there were times in my life when I did. Sure. There were times in my life when I wasn't quite functional. And I would say writing this book was the best therapy I ever did because yeah. it was allowing me to face my past and to forgive myself. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's a big part of moving forward and staying sane is being able to forgive yourself. But also near the end of the book, uh, people find out my high school English teacher, David Sunstrand, whom I've had the pleasure to run into and hang out with again after 45 years, we met again yeah. because of this wow. book. Um, he saved my life because he believed in me. He yeah. saw past all of my facade and right. just recognized that there was a person and an intelligence there. And he yeah. was the guiding light to bring me out yeah. of all of that. Right. You know, I think they're there if we, I just think they're there for anybody who wants a way out. I think such a person shows up. If you, if you actually want a way out, I think they're there for, because a lot of people, you know, I, I teach a lot of memoir writing and, and I work with people who are writing memoirs. And the, I mean, the, st the stories people have been through, yours is horrific. And it's, it's not even the worst of the stuff I've seen, you know, exactly. And not to compare it, but it's like, there's so much stuff people are going through and they come out the other side with their marbles and in many ways with something really valuable to offer the world because of all the chaos that they threw themselves into, or they were thrown into in some cases, mm -hmm. you know? Well, and that's why I, I have that part of the title surviving. And yeah. that is to me, there's, there's a picture in the book near the end of myself, my mother and my sister in 1984. And I yeah. call it the survivors because we yeah. did, survive and it was the three of us together that helped each other and but as you said there were so many kids that didn't reach out or weren't open to somebody holding out a hand saying here take my hand I'll show you how to get out of this yeah. and so yeah. for me that teacher came at just the right moment when yeah. I could see that light but you know what's interesting is you chose to take it because you didn't have to take mm -hmm. it. You know, someone reaches out a hand, you don't have to take it. And something, I'm always interested yep. in the voice within us that says, I remember once I was in this relationship with this girlfriend and it was just, we had just had this chaotic thing. She'd sort of tried mm -hmm. to kill herself, kind of, sort of, not really. And I think we were, I think we finally broke <laughs> up. And my mom said to me, I was still young, but she was probably right. She said, I think that's your last self-destructive relationship you need to be in. 
I said, I, I think you she might be right. I think it positive. was. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and, I, and I will say something, too. I've been married to the same man for 43 years now. And uh, that was another guiding light and a hand being held out because we were opposites. I was still a hippie chick. I was still doing some drugs. I wasn't doing yeah. hallucinogens. And he was applying to be a cop. Ah, <laughs> wow. I know. Oh. And it was just like polar opposites. And yet there was something in him that was absolutely solid and trustworthy. And I would say if anybody saved my life, he did. But uh, I knew it. You know, yeah, I knew you, it. And I, I took that chance and I wouldn't let go of him. Here's what I'll say. I don't think this is my take. That it's not so much that he saved your life as you saw in him a way a choice that was affirming your life. Because I married someone that was my choice to marry my wife was critical well to who said. I am, but I was choosing my life by choosing to be with her. Does that make sense? Yes. Wow. You know? A better way of saying it. Yeah. Well, because you don't want to make yeah, like yeah, he yeah, picked yeah. you up and carried you, you know, because you got to, but there is something about choosing someone you actually love that is so um, self-accepting uh, to love, to actually say, mm-hmm. I love this person. I want to be with that person. Oh, it's beautiful. Well, right, and it's well, also empowerment, self-empowerment to say, okay, I'm going to choose somebody and some situation that is good for me, that will make me a stronger, more reasonable, and more creative person. That's right. self-empowerment, which is why I say that runs through everything that I write and everything I do, because yeah. nobody else can empower us. We have to nope. use that. Nope. Nobody. Nobody. You know... I do a lot of teaching and coaching. You've taken a couple of classes from me, but really all I want mm-hmm. to do is say, you're good. <laughs> you're, you're fine. Mm-hmm. You can do this. You know, I'm trying to, I, I want to teach people. They don't need me. I want to teach people that they're good to go, you know, because I can't <laughs> No, but it's true. And I, and I think I kind of know how to, no, I'm absolutely. Good at that. but that it's all, you've got everything you need. Everybody does. I'm sure of it. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and if you go take that back to writing and to any writers, if they're beginning or experienced that are listening to this, all the stories are in you. And it's yeah. just for you to be quiet and find them and listen to them. And I think something you said in your fearless writing class that I was in was it's as a writer, our job is to ask the question right. and then to try to be silent to hear the answer. Yeah. And that is everything. Now I'm writing a, a paranormal suspense. It's the same thing. I'm asking these pretty whacked out people questions <laughs> and letting them answer it. And yeah. as uh, Henry Miller said, all writing is autobiographical. So I'm yes. sure the answers they're giving me are coming from me, but they yeah. still make an interesting story. And right. that's where we have to go and where we have to look. It's a great one, isn't it? The when I realized my job was to ask the questions, it simplified it because, you know, I, I don't like to use the the you know the the old male the trope about men having to have all the answers and never wanting directions and that kind of thing. Um, but oh, yeah. there's a little bit in that, like you know, I think writers in general, it's not just men. I think it's all people who think they write sometimes think they have to know more than they do, think they have to have all the answers, and it's really really not our job. Our job is just to have the questions. That when I realized that, it made it so much simpler. And my job was to be curious and show up, not to know anything. I didn't have to know anything. I like that, that. Show I was up 
And and yeah. that is you have to show up. You have to be there, ask the questions, and be willing to take the answers. And I I find that with people in before I started writing fiction and my memoirs, I interviewed artists and wrote mm-hmm. for international fine art magazines. And that was exactly what you said. Show up, ask the question, oh. and be open to the answer. And I did retrospectives of people's work and got very deep into their psyches by just asking the questions That's and right. letting them answer. And, and you know what's interesting about that? I've often likened interviewing people to writing because my job is to ask a question. Mm-hmm. But what happens is I, I ask a question. I listen to the author. Then I got to shut up and listen, you know, and the author <laughs> that I'm interviewing talks. But then what I do is I pay attention to what I'm interested in their answer so I can ask another question. So my, my job is to always just pay attention to actually, even though I'm interviewing you, I'm still paying attention to what I'm interested in. So I know what to ask you next. I let my own curiosity be the guide to my questions, which very much is what writing is. What, you know, if you and I started with the same first sentence, we wouldn't write the same first, the same story because our curiosity would take us in different directions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was interesting in writing house of the moon. It's written in vignettes, as you know, yeah. from reading it. And some yeah, of them yeah, were I like, like 250 too. words. And yeah. I would, and the beginning of every vignette is suggested listening. And those yeah. music from the times that I would put on and those songs would ask the questions. Oh. And then oh, I would write the story that came uh, from that. And most of the time it was uh, something that was startling to me. But the music oh. of that time defined it, and yeah. yet it brought back a lot of these memories and where I was when I heard it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that, that yeah, not knowing where it was going to go. And I'll tell you, a lot of vignettes ended up on the cutting room floor. Sure, you know, Because sure. it, it had to move the story forward. Yeah. But, um, yeah, oh, it was a fascinating adventure. Didn't you find yourself, I, this is what I tell my students, is that if you go into, if they're not sure what to do, I say, go and start writing a scene, but just really pay attention to physical details. Describe the physical detail of whatever, wherever you are. And I guarantee you, once you start describing the physical detail, and then, which will lead you to the emotional, your emotional, what you think was your emotional uh, awareness at that time, because the physical always leads to the emotional, uh, if you're really tuned in, you will remember things about that time and place that you had forgotten. It happens it's almost predictable that the remembering mm-hmm. physical details brings back details about that event that you had forgotten or had maybe buried even. Well, that's a perfect example. One of the chapters called Hall, Hall of Justice, um, mm-hmm. which is the courthouse in Los Angeles where a dear friend of mine had accused, <clears throat> excuse me, had finally legally accused her father of raping her and her, and her older sister. And my friend and I were called to testify to what we had seen because we had yeah. seen some of the behavior. And the first thing I remembered was the Hall of Justice, that long hallway that you walked right. down. And right. exactly as I remembered that, and I remembered the light coming in, and I remembered the door yeah. opening and closing and witnesses coming in and out, and everything came back. But it was from the light from the huge windows you in see, that marble hallway. That's how it works. I mean, there's a, probably a whole science mm-hmm. to it, which I don't care about, but I am fascinated <laughs> by 
the, I, I mean, I'm sure there's some, I don't, I don't care, but I'm fascinated that when you, that if you kind of hit, bring yourself back and physically build the space, memories return also. It just, it's, it's, and I have to remember to do that when I'm writing about my own self. If I start talking too theoretically and I don't describe the physical, I feel disconnected for what I'm writing about. I have to remember to get into the physical. Oh, absolutely. And the book that is being shopped now, which I switched over to historical fiction, it's called The Last Magdalene. Right. And it takes place in first century Judea. And the first thing I had to do was figure out where she and her mother lived, where all right. of this happened. And one of my favorite lines is that, you know, that, um, that honeysuckle and jasmine grew year round, uh, replacing, ah. replacing the scent of dusk and dung with <laughs> the thought of hanging gardens and land where water flowed freely. Great. And that led to the feeling of what they were like when they were in their home, in their courtyard. Yeah, so you're that's absolutely good. right. I, once I got the scene, I knew what their life was like. That's great. Well, Donna, Donna, we're almost done. My <laughs> goodness. What a, what a wonderful I'm, I'm not done. I'm not totally done with you. First of all, people <laughs> listening to this are obviously think you're fascinating and want to learn more about you. Uh, where can they do that? Well, there are a few places. I have a website, DonnaConrad.com, uh, Facebook, Donna D. Conrad, and on Twitter, Donna D. Conrad 999. <laughs> and then also I'm going to be teaching at least two, hopefully three classes at PNWA 2020 in September. Yeah. And I don't have the outline right now, but I'm also there there is this magnificent thing for any of you who are going to pitch an agent or an editor. It's called the Pitch Fest. Oh, you're doing and Pitch Fest. Oh, good. I'm doing Pitch Fest. Everybody, if you're going, go to Pitch Fest. You sit That's at right. a table with an author and you hone your pitch, and it is always a hoot and a holler. As That's I think you're taking over for me. Yeah. I think you're <laughs> subbing for me because I'm, I'm going to be in Alaska, unfortunately. I won't be at the conference uh-huh. this year. And so uh, well, and I was asked to do some nonfiction memoir, so that's probably your fault too. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Well, you'll be an excellent you'll be an excellent substitute. No one will mind. All right. So okay. So DonnaConrad.com is where they can meet you. Now, final question, Donna. Uh-oh. Uh Yes. If writing has taught you, finish the sentence. If writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? To be myself. Just be. Oh. Myself. Good answer. Good answer, Donna. Thank you. All right. Well, Donna, you're great. Thank you for coming on the show. Best of luck with the with the uh, with Mary Magdalene's Magdala or Magdalene, which is I thought it was Mary Magdalene. It's it Magdalene? Magdalene, but it's called the Last Magdalene. Gotcha, gotcha. Good luck shopping it. I'm sure okay. some lucky publisher will pick it up. Uh, and and uh, maybe I'll talk to you when that one comes out. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me here. It's been great talking with you as always. All right. Take it easy. Be yourself, people. Be yourself. Who else can you be? Nobody. You'll stink at being everybody else. I guarantee you. I've tried. Uh, I want to thank my producer, R.J. Jeffries. Thank you, R.J. Stay healthy there. I know you're in a state of emergency where you are. Nah, let's not talk about that stupid virus. We're all going to be all right. Everybody, go find something you love and do it. <laughs>